As I just alluded to, we'll turn this evening to Acts 16. And we're going to consider the subject of household baptisms from Luke's account in Acts 16. And then afterwards, we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 27, which is found on page 229 of the Forms and Prayers book in the pews in front of you. But first, we'll give our attention to two Scripture readings from Acts chapter 16 under the heading of Household Baptism. Household Baptism from Acts 16. Acts 16, beginning in verse 11, we read God's Word. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And then we'll jump down to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and when trembling with, and with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Here ends the reading of God's Word this evening. And we'll invite you now to turn with me in the forms and prayers to page 229, Lord's Day 27. Lord's Day 27, which can be found on page 229 in the Forms and Prayers book in the pew in front of you. Beginning with question 72. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood And the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? 
God has good reason for these words. To begin with, He wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Question 74 on page 230. Should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, some years ago there was a famous debate between one of the more popular Baptist ministers in America and one of the more celebrated Presbyterian ministers on the subject of baptism. This was the highlight of the conference. They packed the building for this debate. I believe there was over 4,000 men present. And this famous Baptist pastor was given the opportunity to give opening remarks. And in his 40 minutes or so speech, more than once he said something along these lines, I'm paraphrasing, we baptize adults upon the profession of faith, and you, meaning Reformed and Presbyterian people, baptize babies. This is a charge often brought by our Baptist friends. And one we Reformed and Presbyterian people often don't see a problem with. It's true. Infants are baptized at this church. But did you catch what's wrong with that statement? We baptize adults and you baptize babies. Well... R.C. Sproul did. When he got to the podium and said his opening statement, you say we baptize infants, but that's only a half-truth. We baptize adult converts, and we baptize their children. What Sproul is highlighting here is that we live in a culture that is increasingly individualistic. We think that's Bill Smith, that's Jane Doe, and so on. When we need to give an estimation of the size of something, a school, church, we often speak of it as the number of individuals. Even the UK tax system now. Husbands and wives are no longer relevant categories, and they treat each person on an individual basis we have become increasingly individualistic. 
It's not just adult converts, but it must, if it's not that, then it must be just infants. But this is not the view of the biblical authors. In the Old and New Testament, you are not just an individual being, but we are relational beings as well. That we are individuals, yes, who live in the context of a family, of a tribe, of a nation. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. David, son of Jesse, from the tribe of Judah. Abraham, son of Terah. Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David. We are all individuals. Fearfully and wonderfully made. But we do not exist by ourselves. You say, what does this have to do with Lord's Day 27 subject? Baptism. Am I wrong to suspect that some of us have presented children for baptism? Have raised our children in the knowledge of of their baptism for them only to grow up and to question and to doubt whether it's in the Bible at all. I assume we all know people who have rejected their baptism as an infant only to be baptized as a second time as an adult. And they will say things such as this. The book of Acts shows us that each individual was baptized after faith. You had faith, then you were baptized. Well, what I'd like to show you this evening is that in the book of Acts, there are 12 recordings of baptism. And three are referred to as household baptisms. And that the Heidelberg Catechism and the New Testament, there is an emphasis on both personal responsibility and an emphasis on the blessings of the covenant of grace extending to our children. That there is both personal responsibility and a recognition that the blessings of the covenant are given to the children. We just want to see this in two points this evening. There are two heads of households saved and two household baptisms recorded in Acts 16. Two heads of households saved and two household baptisms. So we come this evening to Acts chapter 16 where Luke is recording for us the details of Paul's second missionary journey. If you flip back to Acts 15, we see the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, beginning in verse 36, where he has a dispute between him and Barnabas. And so since then, Paul and Silas have been touring around the Mediterranean Sea, and the purpose of this second missionary journey is to strengthen the churches they planted two years prior on Paul's first missionary journey. But when they come to the city, we see in verse 11, Toras. Paul received a vision. In verse 9 of chapter 16, we read that Paul receives a vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
When he receives this vision, he's in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this vision is calling him from Turkey, Asia Minor, to Macedonia, modern-day Greece. That is that God changed his mission from church strengthening to church planting. And so we read in verse 11 that Paul... Silas and Luke make a direct voyage from Toros to Samothrace, a small port island in the Aegean Sea. Then they go to Neapolis and then to Philippi. This is the first instance in the New Testament of the mission work in Europe. This journey from Toros to Philippi would have taken about it was about 125 miles. We think it would have taken about between five, two and five days. But we read that they take a direct voyage in verse 11. And this term, direct voyage, communicates that they're not waiting around. That when Paul receives this vision, he does not take his time But with urgency, he leaves Asia Minor and sets his eyes on Macedonia. And it's our initial impression with his vision and the urgency that they make to Macedonia that there would be a great reception of the holy men of God there. At least that's my impression. Come to Macedonia and help us. And then they rush there. You expect Macedonia to welcome them with open arms to receive the ministry of Paul and Silas and Luke. But what do they find in Macedonia? We remained in the city for some days. That's pretty anticlimactic. John Stott even says this phrase could even refer to multiple weeks in Macedonia with nothing to report. This is uncommon for the Apostle Paul. This isn't what he's used to. He's used to lots of action on his missionary journeys. Going to the synagogues. Debating with the philosophers. Probably getting beat up. And then thrown out of the city. That's the trend we expect with Paul. Twiddling your thumbs. That's not what we expect. Or are supposed to expect. Especially since Luke says that Philippi is a Roman colony. And a leading city of the district. That this was a piece of Rome in Greece. It was a famous city named after Alexander the Great's father who seized this city for its gold. It's a European hub for Rome. And here's Paul, as I mentioned, twiddling his thumbs, wondering why did God call me here? Luke goes on, to say that on the Sabbath that they went outside of the gate to the riverside to pray. 
See, according to Jewish practice, in order for there to be a synagogue present in a town, there needed to be ten men who could serve as elders of that synagogue. There needed to be ten families. But if there was not ten families, a provision was made that they could go outdoors to a place with water and that they could have prayer there instead. So Paul and Silas are saying, when we went to Philippi, we didn't find a synagogue, but instead we found people praying by the riverside. What Luke is communicating to us is that in the city of Philippi, there was a hard ground. In mission context, we would say this is a place not ripe for the receiving of the Word of God. And the reason there's no synagogue here is probably because if you turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 2, Emperor Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And since this city, Philippi, is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, it's likely that the emperor has pushed out the Jews from the city. In fact, Paul will even later be arrested, verse 20, because he is a Jew. And he's disturbing the city. The inclination I get is that Jews were not allowed to be here. Just like the rest of Rome. It was a hard ground. But suddenly, we read, and remarkably, we're in a place with hard soil, with no prospect of the success of the gospel, God saves two heads of household Lydia and the jailer. You have to imagine many days sitting in the city with no success, wondering why did God call us here? Bewildered, they go to the riverside to pray. And there's a group of women here who gather around the men to listen to the exposition of the Word. And in this small crowd, there is a woman from Asia Minor, from Thyatira, who is a worshiper of God, a Gentile, who is seeking the Lord. And we read that the Lord opened her heart. And it's the same with the Philippian jailer. There, Paul and Silas are in prison for casting out the demon of a young girl. You know the story. They're singing hymns of faith in the prison. And suddenly there's an earthquake that shakes the foundation. He comes in, what must I do to be saved? What's happening here is that salvation is coming to the hard ground. To the place where salvation has been pushed out by the emperor. To the place of twiddling of thumbs, waiting, God, why did you call us to Macedonia? But the Lord opened the hearts of two people. That as Paul is explaining the covenants, the sacrifices that culminate in the prophet, priest, and king Jesus... And then he applies it to them and say, He died for you, Lydia. He died for you, Philippian jailer. Their hearts are opened. And they're trusting in Christ alone. In Jesus' blood. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're cleansed 
from their sins. And in both cases, they professed faith in Jesus and then they were baptized. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized. It's the same with the jailer in verse 33. He was baptized at once. What is it saying? What is the Bible telling us in black and white? The Bible teaches adult baptism. That in a sense, we are all credo Baptists. That when a convert comes to know Jesus, who had not been baptized before, they're baptized upon their profession. Upon confessing Jesus Christ. And it's not just in Acts 16. It's actually throughout the book of Acts. That when somebody converts, either from a Jewish or a pagan background, baptism followed faith. You see this in Acts chapter 2. You see it in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. We see it in Acts 16 with Lydia. And you see it in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. In all of these instances, baptism was given at the point when a person could be considered a Christian. And it was a seal for them. We talked about this a touch last week, but a seal is when something is stamped upon something else. Like a king would take his signet ring and press it into wax to demonstrate his ownership of a letter or some document. Baptism is a seal for Lydia. A seal for the Philippian jailer. That as surely as they are washed with the water physically, that they have been washed with water spiritually. So baptism doesn't save them, does it? No. Our catechism emphasizes. The Bible teaches. The sacraments don't save. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanses us from all of our sins. That is, that they looked to Jesus Christ, they trusted in the cross of Christ, and they were saved. So we agree with our Baptist friends that all who are baptized have an individual responsibility to trust in Jesus. This is something I really want to stress to you all this evening. We all have a responsibility to believe and embrace Jesus Christ. Even if you were baptized as an infant. You still need to believe in the Gospel. You still need to trust in Jesus Christ. 
Our catechism is saying that the whole point of the sacrament is not that we trust in the sacrament. The point of the sacrament is that we trust in the giver of the sacrament. That in baptism, or in the Lord's Supper, which we celebrated this morning, they declare Jesus alone saves. Every time an infant is baptized, or an adult is baptized, what we're supposed to hear is that Jesus alone saves. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're supposed to be reminded, Jesus alone saves. If we get to heaven, and we stand before the Lord, and we say, let me in, Lord, for I am baptized, to the detriment of trusting in Christ, I mean, we've missed the point of our baptism. Baptism is meant to point our eyes to Jesus, not to the water itself. It's meant to lead us to trust in Christ. And so for Lydia and the Philippian jailer, as surely as they were washed with water physically and the dirt of that day ran off their body into the water, so surely did the sins of their souls flow from them. You see, two heads of households were saved in Philippi. That needs to be established. In the New Testament, there are records of baptisms being administered to converts upon the profession of faith. And sometimes this shocks us. I like to play this on my catechism students. Prove to me infant baptism from the Bible and watch them squirm. Maybe you're surprised when a Baptist friend challenges you and says, give me one verse that says we should baptize infants. It surprises us. But I want to ask the question this evening, should it surprise us? that there are so many adult baptisms in the New Testament. You see, the book of Acts, that's actually a short form. The title is The Acts of the Apostles. The whole book is about the mission work of the apostles in preaching Jesus Christ to people who have never heard of Him before. And adult baptisms accompany accompany the mission context. Jews transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament who have never heard of Jesus or baptism. Pagans who come in contact with Jesus by the preaching of the Word, of the Gospel. They have never heard of Jesus. That's why there's so many adult baptisms. You see, most baptisms in an established congregation will be infant baptisms. Because we've all heard of Christ. We've already been baptized. At least our parents have. But baptisms are the norm in a missionary context. As many of you know, my home church back up in Toronto, where I was a member before our membership was moved here, is a missionary church in downtown Toronto. 
I like to tell people that we have a token Dutch guy at a Dutch Reformed church. Because everybody there is Asian. Or black. Or Middle Eastern. And that when they move to Toronto and they come into contact with the Gospel, it's the first time they've ever heard of it. And so they embrace it. And they love it. And my pastor told me when my daughter was baptized, he says, I've done way more adult baptisms than I've ever done infant baptisms. And even with a lack of experience, she still didn't cry. You see, it should be normal for us, we should be expecting that there are adult baptisms in the book of Acts. Because there are people coming into contact with Jesus for the first time. So the Bible does say adults are baptized when they profess faith. But it's not all the Bible says about baptism. Let's look at our second point this evening. We also see household baptisms. We look at verse 15. She was baptized. Lydia was baptized. And her household as well. Verse 31. The apostles relay the message of salvation to the jailer. And he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved and all your household. Verse 33, and he took them and at the same hour of the night washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them into his house and he set food before him and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed upon God. So when we consider the subject of who should be baptized, the natural question comes, what about the baptism of children? Now, my professor, Cornelis Venema, says, and I think he's right, that household baptisms in Scripture are some of the most convincing proof that infants, as well as adults, are to be baptized. And what we need to do is consider the Old Testament, as we do with all the sacraments. So let's turn back to Genesis 17, if you have a Bible with you. And let us be reminded that since the beginning... God has always dealt sacramentally with households. You see, there may be people who deny that infants should be baptized, but there should be no doubt that the covenant sign was placed upon the male children of the Old Testament. If you look at Genesis 17, verse 7, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you. Jump down to verse 11. And every male child among you shall be circumcised, then verse 12, when he is eight days old. Eight days was the son of Abraham circumcised. Not only was his son circumcised, but also all the servants, male servants in his household were circumcised. That the priority of God, one thing I'm going to use the rest of this evening, is that the unit of measurement God uses is family. 
This is what the Puritans called a federal headship. That when the head becomes part of the covenant with God, so does his dependence upon him enter into covenant with God. And in the Old Testament, the sign of being in covenant with God was circumcision. This is beyond dispute. And it is also beyond dispute that it was applied to the male children. Circumcision, we've learned from the book of Romans, was a sign and a seal of God's promise of salvation. Keep your finger in Genesis 17 and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, where Peter, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches to the masses of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, beginning in verse 36, this is the pinnacle, the culmination of his great sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this story, they were cut to the heart. They said to the P- Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the personal responsibility they have as adults. And then look what he says in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The very same promise... God used, or gave, I should say, to Abraham in Genesis 17, I will be the God to you and your offspring. Peter quotes here when talking about baptism. Likewise, Paul, in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12, when speaking to Gentiles about the prominence and the purpose of circumcision, he says, You were circumcised when you were baptized. Infants were given the sign of the promise of salvation in the Old Testament. And this is beyond dispute. Circumcision was the sign of God's grace in Christ to come. And if grace was given to children in the Old Testament, can it be constrained Restricted in the New Testament. Christ has enhanced, brought to fulfillment, lavishly poured out His grace in the New Testament. Why would there be less grace in the New Testament if it's restricted to just children, or excuse me, just professing adults? You see, there is no doubt in the Old Covenant that infants as well as adults were included in God's covenant. They were part of His people and they were promised deliverance. Now, I have many Baptist friends and the common refrain I hear from them when I bring this up to them is they say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. 
And I want to focus with you just for a bit this evening on that word household. Because it's so important. Household, we've already seen, was integral to the life of Israel. But what I want you to notice is that that theme of household is not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. Again, we saw that Lydia's whole household was baptized. And just a word of application here. Ladies, never forget that you can be used mightily for the salvation of your families. Lydia was the head of her household and led her family to Christ. Notice also that the jailer, when he was saved and his family were baptized, he rejoiced his entire household that he believed in God. The members of the household, all of them, were baptized and rejoiced. But to be able to unlock its meaning, we need to remember that God's unit of measurement is not individuals in house, but households. Now, the Bible is full of this. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 11 to this evening, here we see this household principle is laid down as decisive for the future ministry of the Christian church. Acts chapter 11 is a monumental moment in the formation of the church of Christ. Peter has just finished, if you remember in Acts 10, eating and, or preaching I should say, and eating with a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, which was a practice forbidden by the Jews. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter is basically being interrogated for what he did. Remember Peter, even himself in Acts chapter 10, he was weary of going to Cornelius' household. But only a vision shown to him twice convinced him to go. Acts chapter 11 is a decisive moment in the history of the church. Because it signals the start of the Gentile mission. And look at how Peter recounts what happened. Verse 14. An angel came to him, told Cornelius that Peter will come and he will declare a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The angel told Cornelius that Peter would proclaim deliverance through Christ's blood Not just to the adults, but that he would proclaim deliverance for the entire household. This council set the foundation stone for the ministry of the church ever after. This was a decision made by the apostles that salvation was not just for individuals. In isolation. But salvation is for the whole household that they belong to. And our God hasn't changed. His promise is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's grace was for you and your children in the book of Genesis. And it's the same in the book of Acts. This is seen throughout the New Testament. 
Luke talks about baptizing whole households. Ten, and then twice in chapter 10, and then twice in chapter 16. Paul also talks about baptizing whole households. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 16. Cornelius' household was baptized. Lydia's house was baptized. The jailer's house was baptized. The promise of deliverance through the blood of Christ was given to all of the household. The jailer, his wife, his teenage children, his infant children, the servants, their children, Cornelius, Lydia, their whole households received the promise. And were baptized. There's individual responsibility. And there is a corporate blessing. That when the covenant head comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the promise is given to him and his family. And it is signified and sealed, our catechism reminds us, in the waters of baptism. A classic objection to this household principle is, are we sure infants are present here? My Baptist friends like to say to me, if you could give me one verse where it says infants were baptized... I would baptize my infants. But I don't think it's a fair argument. Because there are lots of things the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but we believe. John Calvin's famous example is there's nowhere in the Bible that says women should receive the Lord's Supper. Yet, we give the Lord's Supper to women. Neither is there anywhere in the Bible where it mentions the Trinity. Yet, we profess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's true. There is no Bible verse that says, Thou shalt baptize babies. But what does it say? Let's get back to the text this evening. In Acts 16, it doesn't say really much of anything about who was baptized other than Lydia, the jailer, and their households. Did you notice that? It doesn't mention anybody else. Whether they're an adult or an infant. But four times in this chapter, Luke mentions the household. Verse 15, verse 31, verse 33, and verse 34. What was important to Luke is not who was there and what age they were, but that God's covenant went to the household. That's what's important. That the promise was for them and the household. God's unit of measurement is not individuals, but households. And so, here's my conclusion. That if God is a God of grace, and that baptism is a sacrament of God's grace, And that God graciously received Old Testament children in the covenant. And Jesus graciously took the little ones onto His lap and He blessed them. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say that infants are the appropriate 
subjects of baptism. And that their baptism rests wholly upon the grace of God expressed in His gracious covenant promises. They are baptized not because they've done anything to receive it, and much less to earn their baptism, but because of God's gracious covenant promise. When He said in Genesis 17, in Acts 2, verse 39, I will be the God to you and your children after you. As many of you know, I was not raised in a home that practiced infant baptism. I was raised in what's called the Free Methodist Church of Canada, which as far as I know was one of the only denominations in North America which baptizes both infants and adults, depending on the preference of the church. And so the church I grew up in and the churches around me did not practice infant baptism. And so I was baptized as an adult. And as I began to study uh, Calvinism, Reformed theology, especially infant baptism, one of the things that made such an impression upon me was John Calvin's argument that the infant baptism is actually one of the greatest displays of the Gospel. That just as a father carries an infant child to the baptismal font, with no work of itself, no, nothing it did, nothing it's done, nothing it will do will qualify it for baptism. So does Jesus, Calvin says, carry us to the Heavenly Father. It's one of the greatest examples of the Gospel promise. That it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Does it mean that we do not have individual responsibility? No. You still must respond to the Gospel promise. But this is the promise. That all who are washed washed with the waters of baptism, as surely as they trust in Christ, will be washed of all of their sins. And this has implications for us as parents, doesn't it? A word of application. Do we raise our children as Christians? As people who know the Lord? Or do we raise them as people who are pagans? As vipers and diapers, some people say. But the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says, children, obey your parents in Christ. Both believing parents, husbands and wives, servants, And children, Paul says in Ephesians 6, are in Christ. He doesn't treat them as unbelievers. But nor does he assume that they're innocent. He says they're sanctified. They're set apart for Jesus. And as parents, we are called to raise them to love the God who baptized them. This also has implications for us when we have children who pass away in infancy? What about a child who dies before it could profess faith? Or a child who dies in the womb? Or a child who dies at two or three years old? 
The covenant of grace assures us that when we stand by the graveside of a little child, it is not a place of sorrow. We can go with hope. In fact, the canons of Dort speak directly to this, summarizing what the Bible says. If you turn with me to the canons of Dort 1, Article 17, which is on page 263 of your forms and prayers there, they at this time had many infants who would not reach the age of maturity. And so they included here some instruction. And notice what it says. Article 117, page 263, Since we must make judgments about God's will from His Word, which testifies that children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included. Listen to this. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children who God calls out of this life in infancy. Not because they're pure. Not because they're perfect. But because God graciously includes little children in His covenant. Believing parents need never doubt when God calls a little child to Himself. We can take comfort. We can trust that because of God and His covenant and His grace to us and our children, that those children are received by God in grace. Faith in Christ is produced in their little hearts by God's grace. Let's conclude this evening. We baptize infants We baptize converts and their children because we believe in God's promise that is extended throughout generation and generation to us and to our households. We trust that God's promise will be fulfilled in our children. God is their God. So let us raise them in the faith. Let us teach them to look ever and always to the God who has set His seal upon them. It is all of grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks that You are the gracious God from generation to generation. And that You have been pleased from the Abrahamic covenant to mark believers and their children And that, Lord, You do not change. You are still gracious. And You are still with us. And You are still marking our children today. Thank You for the salvation that came to Lydia and the jailer's household. And we thank You for the salvation that You have wrought in our hearts as well. And we pray for our children that as they receive that sign and seal, that they too might by faith look to Jesus and trust in Him that they would hear the mighty deeds of old, that they would respond in faith. Thank You, Lord, for Your goodness unto us. 
from everlasting to everlasting. Amen.